25, episode 25. It seems like they all, like it's gone by really quick. Goes by way too quick. Okay, but uh, before we spend too much time realizing that time passes and uh, being surprised about it, about it like everybody else, Ian, is there a more iconic early rock and roll record label than Sun at all? No. I mean, I, I was trying to think about it this morning before we started, like, trying to make a comparison, trying to, you know, see, like, one did it this way, one did it that way, and, you know, Sun Records just did it first and best, and nobody else really did anything. They found the early budding talent for rock and roll, and then all these guys had amazing careers. Yeah, and <laughs> some of the biggest names. Yeah, that- most influential careers in rock and roll, you could say. Some of them that were literally legendary, uh, like, <laughs> you know, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, you know, some some small names like that. Some names we'll get to. And, and like, you know, those, those are only the obvious ones. Those who have had any record of sun, or knowledge of Sun Records will have already known, so I haven't given it away. But honestly, uh, after today, you may be a little surprised at who else is really involved in this uh, sort of one orchestration, because I sure was surprised for sure. We should probably start as we always do in the beginning. There's no birthday, though. There actually is. Okay. Because if we're going to talk about Sun Records, then we've got to talk about Sam Phillips, the owner and operator of Sun Records through most of its time. Yay, birthday. Yay. So Sam Phillips was born Samuel Cornelius Phillips in Florence, Alabama on January 5th, 1923 to Charles and Tucker Phillips and Madge Ella Phillips the youngest of eight children. Yeah, I mean, we're getting to the 1920s era of, like, births, so we're starting to get later in history now. We're not doing any 1800 birthdays anymore. Nope, not anymore. All right, so uh, so what was his parents' name again? I'm sorry. Charles Tucker Phillips and Madge Ella Phillips. Those are some fucking cool names. Like, we always judge people's names, like, on level of coolness. That's right there is just a classic 1920s family. Never mind. I was going to mention the uh, <laughs> the painting, but I can't remember the title of it. Gothic something. Are you talking about the people with the pitchfork? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the old man with the pitchfork and the old lady? Yeah. yeah I could see that. Yeah. No, I, I well, can actually see that being their names. And here's the thing. They grew up a middle class farming family. Unfortunately, you know, the stock market crash in 1925, you know, made them struggle quite a bit. Yeah, that's, uh, ironically enough, the stock market crashing really affects everything, especially that time around. Yeah. Luckily, though, it happens before his career starts, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, that's something. Yeah, I mean, he was about six years old when it happened. But, you know, they seemed to do okay, at least survive, you know, they still farmed. But music was always kind of a, a mainstay in Sam Phillips' childhood. He grew up listening to blues songs of, you know, African-American workers in the fields, on street corners, you know, gospel music in churches, country radio and the music, you know. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the case is like a lot of these uh, early rock and roll guys who are, you know, white, but, you know, a lot of people, quote unquote, give them soul or whatever it may be. They they grew up in the communities with all the African-American. Yeah, they worked in the in the fields with them on the farm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it seems to actually be like, I don't know, there's some there's some soul associated with hard labor. So, uh, you know, maybe if your songs aren't working out for you, musicians out there, go out and like hoe the yard and, you know, start singing along. Maybe it'll uh, (laughs) maybe go hoe a couple yards. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I didn't mean that in any sort of you know disrespectful way. Obviously, if you're if you're hoeing a field, it's a whole different situation. Like <laughs> working as a farmer is a tough motherfucking job. Yeah, it is. So not a whole lot of info on his early childhood. He attended Coffee High School. He's active in the band there. He played sousaphone, trombone, and drums, and would eventually become the band's conductor. Yeah. Now, I'd never heard of a sousaphone. Have you heard of it? Yes, uh, because I was in band when I was young. Oh, yeah. It's a curly tuba. I know. It's literally, my notes, it's curly tuba. I've played one one time. (laughs) If you guys don't know, it's the marching band tuba. Yeah, it's essentially uh, like a tuba that wraps around your body so that you can walk around with it. They are extremely uncomfortable to wear, at least the one I wore was. In all those 90s, like... Growing up in high school movies. Oh, yeah. Coming of age movies. You always saw the fat kid playing the sousaphone. <laughs> I may be fairly tall now, but when I was in this uh, early middle school, there was uh, I was extremely short. I was a, I was a tiny kid, and I played uh, just, I, I think I was playing fucking clarinet at the time, and there was no fucking sousaphone player for some marching thing that they were doing. And they were just like, here, Pat, you can do this. And I got, <laughs> I got, like, I got like a week to learn. I didn't practice once. Sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody could actually hear anything. Can you imagine what, like, ninth graders marching by doing bad marching songs sounds like? I can only imagine. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know I didn't even want to be there. It was just a class I was forced to be in, so. <laughs> and so after Sam Phillips' father died in 1941, he would end up dropping out of high school shortly before he graduated just to help support his mother and deaf aunt. And, of course, when you're financially strapped, you want to get married. So, in 1942, he marries Rebecca Burns from nearby Sheffield in Alabama. And they would go on to have two sons, Knox and Jerry. But he still wanted to, you know, have an education. So, he would end up harboring dreams of becoming a lawyer. But he'd take some extra courses in audio engineering from Alabama Polytechnic Institute, which would later become Auburn Any of you football fans out there probably know that. Oh, yeah, kind of. And so it was kind of here where his passions for music would kind of overwhelm his other ambitions. And his musical knowledge drew the attention from a radio station owner in nearby Muscle Shoals, Alabama, who enlisted his services as a host of a religious music program. And so this would get him his first start in the music industry. And from 1942 to 1949... He'd end up moving around working as a radio engineer for such radio stations as WMCS in Decor, Alabama, WLAY in Nashville, Tennessee, where he gained his first renown as the host of Afternoon Tea Dance. Sounds pretty hillbilly to me. Oh, yeah. Afternoon Tea Dance? Yeah, that's something. And then he'd finally end up with WREC in Memphis. Come listen to radio at WREC. Yeah. (laughs) Get wrecked. (laughs) and it was during this period where he would end up learning a great deal about recording music transferring vinyl recordings to acetate tapes and pre-recording shows for various radio hosts and it was during this time in memphis phillips would notice that many local musicians had to either travel to nashville new orleans or chicago to make records while many others labored in obscurity unable to record or distribute their music Yep, this is where the birth of a great idea comes up. And so, his experience in the music industry, he figured it was valuable. He decided to start his first recording studio, 
which opened as Memphis Recording Service in January 1950. Oh, yeah. And believe it or not, this was the first recording studio in Memphis. Like, Memphis, now you can go and there's numerous studios. Yeah. But back then, there was no other studios. This was the only one. Yeah, and in a town that is now known for its music, you know what I mean? Memphis, Tennessee is literally like a, a huge music destination now. And it's... I don't want to say in part because of Sun Records. I think it's almost all because of Sun Records. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, without him opening in Memphis, I don't think there would be any real, like, recording kind of atmosphere there. And, and, I mean, don't get me wrong. The kind of consequence of, you know, reality is that somebody else would have eventually made a great rock and roll, you know, uh, record label if he didn't. Right. But it wouldn't have been in his hometown or wherever he, you know... Memphis, Tennessee, whatever his relationship to it was that made him decide here specifically. Probably all the knowledge of musicians locally and things like that made it a lot more available. Well, right, and we can use Seattle as a great kind of example of that because every musician coming out of Seattle had to travel to L.A. to make it big, or in the case of, like, Jimi Hendrix, travel to freaking Britain. Yep. And until Sub Pop, there was really no, like, any sort of recording studio here, really. Yeah, which I couldn't say. It must have been, what, like... Maybe 90s? Uh, I'm going to say probably late 80s. Okay, yeah. I, I don't really know like, I'm not, the history of Sub Pop that much. Maybe we'll put it into the uh, into the beep, boop, boop machine, and it might land there someday. Yep. See, I let Ian do the boops this time because I knew they were coming. We wrote it in our <laughs> notes. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> Among my many other talents. Yeah, he's the booper of the, of the group. <laughs> and in the early days of his recording... Phillips earned most of his revenue by offering anyone who walked in off the streets a chance to cut a records for $2 a side personal recordings. Oh, that's fucking cheap, dude. Yeah, so essentially you want to go record two songs, four bucks. And his motto was, we record anything, anywhere, anytime. Hell yeah. Hey, did he say anywhere? We record anything, anywhere, anytime. So, did I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to think of that too much, but that makes me think he was, like, recording in people's other places, like... Well, let me explain. He would actually pack his recording gear into the trunk of his car and record private events such as weddings, funerals, and other functions. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, so before video, you know, you want to record your wedding, well, you're going to record the audio of it, you know, all the I do's and speeches and whatever. That's something I have literally never thought of in my entire life. Holy shit, people must have had the audio from their weddings on fucking records, and then they'd be like, hey, baby, let's, you know, let's, yeah. buy, let's listen to the wedding tape or, whatever, or the re wedding record. Like, that's... <laughs> that is just weird. That is, right? that is something that, like, I literally can't, like, my brain can't seem to wrap around. Yeah, it's definitely odd considering how much of a big industry it is with recording equipment like yeah, and we know that video like, recording yeah, we know equipment. like videotaping a wedding is like a huge thing and photography is a huge thing in weddings so obviously i like it would translate but just i don't know i think he hit a little niche there yeah but of course his real ambition was to produce a hit record and at first he would rely on established labels such as chess records based in chicago but after several heated contract disputes with other labels and distributors, he decided to start his own record label. And you know what that was called? Um, 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 Moon Records? No. 
It's called Phillips Records. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. You tried to bait me. I did. Uh, I really did. I see. And you didn't play into it. No, no. You son of a bitch. No, nah, I'm too cautious for that shit. <laughs> and he would soon release his first record, Boogie in the Park by Joe Hill Lewis. Hell yes. And this was not commercially popular, but it did start to attract the attention of such artists as, say, B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf. Ike Turner, yeah, all of whom would end up recording in Phillips' Memphis studio. Before they were even Sun Records. A lot of them, yeah. That's awesome. And even even while they were Sun Records. Well, yeah, I, I obviously assumed that. I just never was aware that there was like a second name for it. So, so I was going to put this in my notes, but it seemed like every other side I looked at, everything I was reading about it, they couldn't agree on whether he went out of business or he just decided to change the name. Oh, yeah, like his like whether or not it was the first business failed and then he tried again or whether yeah. it was just a simple name change. Oh, I see. And so we made it. The first dude check out this song, Joe Hill Lewis, Boogie in the Park. It's worth listening to, honestly. I, I, I've li- heard multiple covers of it. I just could, can't really, like, place where at at the moment. Like, while I was listening to it and even, like, since then, I've been trying to think about it, but I can't remember who I heard play this song. It's kind of a low quality recording, you know, like it's definitely not like the quality that would come out later in Sun Records, but it's still like you can hear where the start of it begins, which I think is pretty damn cool. And plus, like you you mentioned a loose reference that comes out in a more modern setting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what? Demented Argo, right? Demented Argo. So I'm pretty sure they took this version and turned it into Pervy in the Park. Yeah, Pervy in the Park. Yeah, it's a... It's a <laughs> You'd have to listen to the band to understand what, yeah. the, what the context of the things they make. But uh, Pervy in the park, pervy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's over-the-top, like, semi-rockabilly music. <laughs> hey, guys, Ian just sang. Just just putting that. Just <laughs> I wanted to point that out. Just for I the, sang in the, in the vocal stylings of Demanded Argo. Thank you. Oh, well, yeah, whatever. But e- either way, I'm, we're not going to decots that song because uh, for obvious reasons, it's <laughs> it's not contextually pro- uh, appropriate. But uh, it is worth mentioning that even though this song didn't have initial commercial response, like it still ret- or, uh, like retains its street cred to this day. Oh, yeah. And so in 1951, Phillips had his first hit with a song called Rocket 88. Oh, and this is a jam. Yeah, and it's by Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats which reached number one on the rhythm and blues charts. Now, the thing about this song is it had Ike Turner as singer, songwriter, and piano player. Yeah, so I don't even have to put this guy in the asshole spotlight. I'm pretty sure you guys already know he's just chilling in the asshole spotlight, but this is the infamous Ike Turner. Yeah, he did hit Tina Turner once or twice. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh at that, but just the the way he had played. Yeah, he did strike her once or twice or, you know, (laughs) about the face and head. For the people who are ignorant about it. Yeah. And so this brings me to my second to check out this song. Tina Turner. (laughs) (laughs) How'd you know? It's actually not Tina Turner. I I should have put her on here. I don't know what I was thinking, but it is Jackie Brinston and his Delta Cats 
Rocket 88. <laughs> yeah, well, the, uh, we we figured that out based on the fact we were just talking about that song. But yes, that uh, that jam is well worth listening to, despite yeah. the, the how much it's tarnished by the existence <laughs> of one pathetic person. Well, we'll just go with Jackie Brenston, because I think he's a made-up name, and... You know, he doesn't seem to be a bad guy. <laughs> so, so wait. So, so is Jackie Brenston the made-up name of Ike Turner? Is that what's going on here? I think so. <laughs> well, in that case, I, <laughs> Jackie Brenston, which is a... If you're going to pick a name... I know. What a terrible <laughs> stage name to choose, right? That's the last name, dude. What the fuck is your problem? But, uh, yeah, now you're going to stand with your non-fictional self in the asshole spotlight, too. I don't know. If it's not you and I'm just deforming your name, I'm sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> if many, you're like, much love. If you're the bass player, we, <laughs> uh, we do apologize. Yeah, if it was just like, dude, what the fuck? I wrote the song, man. <laughs> so, encouraged by his success with this song, Phillips resigned from WREC. Wreck'em. <laughs> and he devoted all his energy to the studio. And in 1952, this is when he renamed his label to Sun Records. Or it went out of business, and then he opened a new business called Sun Records. In the same place. Yeah, asterisk. <laughs> so you take your decision whichever way you want. But the the uh, new records label, Sun Records, has arisen. Well, and he basically said, you know, he wanted, like, a symbol of a positive energy, you know, for his label, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So, we'll go with that, I guess. Yeah. And in March of that year, he would release the first single on the label, Johnny London's Driving Slow. Definitely not a rock and roll song. No, no not at all? Not at all. It's, it's driving slow? It's definitely driving slow. <laughs> and then he would score his second big hit with Rufus Thomas's Bearcat. But here's the thing about the song. <laughs> it's, it's kind of its own song. Uh, it was basically considered a retort to Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. And so they used the exact same structure. Yeah, so just sing me the first line of the song, Ian. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the first line is, you know what you said about me, don't you, woman? Well, you ain't nothing but a bear cat. Been scratching at my door. <laughs> it it is ain't nothing but a bear cat. Uh uh uh. Pretty much scratching at my door. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is it is quite ridiculously like the most straight up. Uh, this is not a different song. Different song in quotation marks <laughs> I have ever heard. Well, and because of this, they had to forfeit a large part of the royalties because you know it's basically hound dog. Yeah, well, I mean, I could assume at the end of the day they could that doesn't hold up in court. This is a different song. Okay, let's play them back and forth. Well, I imagine they recorded it and had a big old laugh in the studio and was like, yeah, let's release it. Yeah, let's No big deal. Let's release it. We'll just take a loss no matter what, pretty much. <laughs> Maybe just to get more of a name for the studio. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if at the end of the day, all they did was lose the rights to it and one evening of work and some giggles, fuck it, you know? Well, at this time, you'd also end up signing a group of inmates from the Tennessee State Penitentiary called The Prisoners, and they were to record a song called Just Walking in the Rain, and that would end up becoming a hit for him, too. They're pulling out a card from the Lomax playbook. Let's get them out of prison. Yeah, but it's also not rock and roll. So, my next dude check out the song is Rufus Thomas, Bearcat. 
Hell yeah. So check that out because it's definitely a different song than uh, Hound Dog. I promise you. <laughs> and then after you listen to that song, just go back to our Big Mama Thornton episode and look up Hound Dog. Yep. And then just once again, be uh, outraged with us about why Big Mama Thornton is not more fucking famous. Because though I'm still, uh, we're, we're episodes past it and I'm still con- honestly, personally butthurt about it. And so up to this point, Philip's successes, you know, had all been from the African-American community, and he just basically focused on the rhythm and blues market. And hoping to unite the races through music, Phillips made a famous statement, and he said, I quote, if I can find a white man who can sing with a black man's soul, I can make a million dollars. And I, you know, I, I, uh, whatever the, you know, the race relations at the time slash now, uh, like that statement is hilarious, but there are some white boys out there that have all the soul of, you know, uh, as many as, as black people like there's, you know, it's reasonable, but at the same time, like it's just, the statement is so amazing. And also kind of racist if you think about it, because it's all basically racist. like, yeah. like, I mean, anytime you identify any one group of yeah. people based on the color of their skin, regardless of the point. It's still racist. But he basically just said, I could make more money off of a white guy than a black guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's that's pretty much the truth, too. And he proved that very shortly after this. Well, it was actually very shortly after this, because one day someone named Elvis Presley would end up showing up at Sun Records studio to record two songs, supposedly as a birthday gift to his mother. Oh, geez. (laughs) Wait, so is that really the precedence in which... Elvis Presley recorded his first two songs as, as a birthday gift to his mother. That's how he was discovered. Oh, my he God. W- he ended up getting invited back to record an album in July 1954. <laughs> so did did the, uh, what was it? I'm sorry, the, the Sun uh, Records owner. What is his name again? Sam Phillips. Yeah, did Sam Phillips personally uh, request that Elvis come back? or is this That's just, what it looks like. That's, that's pretty cool. It made it seem like he was highly involved in all of the recordings in this er- in these early years. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure there were other producers involved as there usually are, but it, typically, especially in this situation with so probably few people working yeah. for him, I assume he was very hands on. Well, it was probably studio musicians, producer, and him. Yeah, exactly, and probably you know there's the techs. I mean, there is. I'm sure at most points he was probably running also the tech position in his own role, but as they'd grow larger, they would have, you know, people who knew what they were doing with the equipment. Kind of made it seem like he was kind of the guy who knew the equipment. I I could see that, though. That's that's honestly usually what makes the best quality. Yeah, especially with his experience at the time, because he was a radio DJ who just kind of learned how to work all this equipment. Yeah, and on top of knowing how to record and also how the radio side works, that's a super big advantage. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so Presley would end up coming back, obviously. Who? Elvis Presley. I don't know if you've heard of him. No, he's... Yeah. Well, and he would start to sing a song called That's All Right, Mama. And Phillips would urge two of the session musicians, guitarist Scotty Moore and bassist Bill Blackwell, to play along. So, so Elvis wasn't typically playing with a band before that? This is kind of... No, he just came in to sing. Yeah, so Sam Phillips was like, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna give you a band here, yeah. real quick." <laughs> and then, and then with these two guys, they kind of develop what Sam Phillips would believe is a unique sound that he was looking for, 
that he could actually bring to larger audiences and make them rich, essentially. God, that really does show, like, such an interesting and special moment there for, like, the world and rock and roll in general. Okay, first of all, I'm first at bat to talk shit and take shots at Elvis Presley because it's fun. And, yeah, we and are both guilty of that. And he's a weird dude. He does... The weirdest things that I have ever heard a human being did on the regular basis. But we're not talking about that. All I'm saying is that moment right there, Sam Phillips, Elvis Presley, and the whoever the other two musicians were. I'm sure you have names. Scotty Moore on guitar and Bill Black on bass. Oh, yes. And those two gentlemen sitting around there like, hey, we're building the sound that, quote, unquote, I'm looking for. So if you really think about it from that perspective, Sam Phillips... Just like a piece of clay molded the future of rock and roll, probably in a night. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he heard him record two songs for his mom and then was just like, there's something with this guy. Yeah, like, like he has the, the X factor. You know what I mean? Like, you've, you've seen musicians like that. Like, some musicians work really hard to be really good. And they're great musicians and they work, you know, I mean, like, sweat equity is the most important thing in music. Some people have just that something stupidly special that they don't have to work for. Elvis Presley was immediately and instantly one of those people. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he had that unique voice, but it was also, like, very comforting, you know? Yeah, and I mean, he's a generally handsome man. All the things that are required for you to be, like, a... Famous? Yeah, famous. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so Sam Phillips would end up recording five singles for Elvis, ten songs in all. And he would personally deliver them to prominent radio stations throughout the South. He would end up signing Presley to a contract and booked him to play at traveling shows, many of which were broadcast live over radio stations all over the country. And so these 10 songs that were recorded was That's All Right Mama, Blue Moon of Kentucky, Good Rockin' Tonight, I Don't Care If The Sun Don't Shine, Milk Cow Blues Boogie, You're a Heartbreaker, Baby Let's Play House, I'm left, you're right, she's gone, I forgot to remember to forget, and Mystery Train. Oh, yes. Which brings me to my next dude, check out this song. And it's going to be That's Alright. Any way you do. (laughs) Blue Moon of Kentucky, Milk Cow Blues Boogie, and Mystery Train. I'm going to look up Milk Milk Cow Blues Boogie. I've never heard that song. but It's a good one. That's that's one of the ones that didn't make it into my ears for tonight's session, so. Well, I decided to skip the Elvis Presley because... Because we've all heard it all. <laughs> yeah. Apparently not, because I haven't heard Bil- Milk Cow Blues Boogie. And I probably have heard it, I just don't know the name, because the name's hard to remember. And with these recordings, major labels were urging Phillips to sell Elvis's contract, and... He would make an agreement with RCA, who would end up paying Phillips $35,000 plus $5,000 in back royalties for Elvis's contract. So $40,000 in total? $40,000 in total. For Elvis's recording contract. Yep. Phillips would later oh. lament that decision, too. He would remark that it was the worst business decision he ever made in his life. God, that is so short-sighted. Yeah, but... He really needed the money. I mean, $40,000 at that time is a new studio. So I completely understand like how he's like, hey, yeah, RCA can have this one pop guy that I found. Because, you know, in a lot of ways, Elvis can be considered pop at that point. 
Uh, but you know, for forty thousand dollars is a whole new Sun Records. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. Well, and that you actually hit the nail on the head there. So with this money, he would end up expanding Sun Records, and he would actually be able to offer deals to other young, talented musicians flocking to his studio. You know, people like Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, and Roy Orbison. So there could be an argument to made if he didn't sell this record. These guys might not have been discovered. Yeah, that is actually a, a, a fairly reasonable like uh, set of events to where you could argue for the other side. Now that I'm looking at it, like if he doesn't have that newer set of, maybe he doesn't pick up the Johnny Cash of all people. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm never one to take personal sides. You know, I, I have my favorites and I have the people I don't like typically based on what they do. But Johnny Cash is a fucking national treasure, people. Who hates Johnny Cash? Yeah, I mean, the the only thing I've ever had bad to say about Johnny Cash was when we made fun of him for the prison thing. Uh, and that was, that was in good faith, guys. <laughs> He's a national treasure. And it was a joke. Be. Settle down. Yeah, yeah, take your fucking breaks there. It was also during this time that Phillips would end up separating from his wife, and he would begin sharing his home with Sally Wilborn, his personal assistant at Sun Records. I couldn't find any records of them ever marrying, but she would remain with him for the rest of his life. So they were together. Yeah, they were yeah. basically married. Well, I mean, it, if they lived together for the rest of their life, like, you know. Yeah, that's basically his second wife. Yeah, that's... It, the only difference is the legal distinction of marriage. Yeah, pretty much. So number one? Uh, this is number two. Oh, yeah, ex excuse me, number two. And so... Sam Phillips would end up abandoning blues recordings and he would concentrate solely on this new music that would be called rockabilly. Hell yeah. A combination of hillbilly and rock and roll, if none of y'all figured it out. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty simple distinction. I know that it seems very complex whether you rock and also you billy, but guys, it's fantastic. And do you rockabilly? It's like... It's like mixing alcohol and soda. You know what I mean? It's it's <laughs> it's it's lemonade and iced tea. It's supposed to be mixed, guys. You know, rockabilly's great. If you don't listen to any rockabilly, just check some out. You you'll have fun. And it was in this period that Sun Records would end up recording just a ton of hits. And really to not talk for the rest of the episodes about some of the amazing songs he recorded, I put some of my personal favorites in here. Oh shit. He would record Carl Perkins, who was on the verge of major stardom with the song Blue Suede Shoes. Which, Carl Perkins is fucking awesome, guys. Yeah. It would actually reach number two on the pop charts and number one on the country charts, despite the fact that Elvis Presley would end up, you know, getting super famous off this song. But, unfortunately for Carl Perkins, he was involved in a serious automobile accident, which left him unable to cash in on this popularity. That is, that's actually really sad. I didn't know about that. Yeah, this is kind of why I wanted to cover him. Yeah, well, Because he was like, he was like going to be up there with Elvis and then got in this car accident. Everybody forgot about him, essentially. All right, well, maybe we'll throw him in the beep, boop, boop machine for later. Doop, 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 doop. <laughs> why is that the tune that it does now? I don't know. <laughs> it's thinking differently. Whatever. Electric Avenue? Is that what that was? <laughs> <laughs> and of course... He would record two huge hits with Jerry Lee Lewis, whole lot of shaking going on, and Great Balls of Fire. I don't know if you guys know those songs at all. 
honestly, like for me being somebody who's born in the '80s, those songs were used so much in '90s music or '90s movies. They <laughs> yeah. like Top Gun. Yeah, no, I, both of those songs are hugely used in '90s movies. So if you're born before a certain point, you will definitely know those songs. And as long as you get through Jerry Lee Lewis's history. Oh, my God, please. We're just shuffling him to the asshole spotlight. We're not even talking about it. He can go stand over there with with Elvis and the other people. Those Cousin be- fucker. Yeah. <laughs> you can go stand with the guy who punched Tina Turner, dude. <laughs> you deserve this. Y'all they're, go stand over they're there. They're holding hands in the asshole spotlight. <laughs> We don't really ever get, like, two major figures in the asshole spotlight in one episode. So, of course, the Sun Records episode will be, we're at the end, the asshole spotlight will just be crowded full of people that are famous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't put Elvis in there yet. Uh, he, I actually did mention that. I think he just passed over it. Oh. Yeah, well, he's in there. I'm Just in case I have to mention that, Elvis is behind them doing bunny ears behind both of them <laughs> while they're holding hands in the asshole spotlight right now. He's, he's used to it. He's in there all the time. Like, if you guys ever wonder, and you're like, hey, who's in the episode, like, right now, and who's in the asshole spotlight? Elvis is there before we even hit the play button, so. You might say there's a specific spot in Vegas for the asshole spotlight. <sighs> all right, move forward before we talk sh- more shit about Elvis. Somebody's going to get mad. I know. I, I was trying really hard not to talk shit. <laughs> And you mentioned him before, Johnny Cash, who had his hits Folsom Prison Blues, which made the country top five, and I Walked the Line, which, you know, was number one on the country charts. And despite the fact that during the episode where I was making fun of him for that track, that is a fantastic track. And the fact that he performed it in front of prisoners was a ideal and great and doing like a social justice for them and providing them with something they didn't get. Me making jokes about him not being actually in prison while making it was nothing, you know, against him. And actually, if you get a chance, look up his live album of him playing in prison. It's pretty fucking fantastic. Yeah, it is great. Like, he interacts with the crowd, and it's, uh, it, is, it is well worth a listen to either way. You can, you can feel the energy in that live show. Well, and so there's kind of a funny little story with Cash when he uh, decided to visit Sun Records hoping to record there oh yeah well this is the moment for funny little stories bitch drop it on me so he auditioned for sam phillips and after the audition sam phillips told him to go home and sin then come back with a song i can sell (laughs) oh because johnny cash i assume because of his connection to gospel and and bible music came and performed bible songs for him yep that's exactly what it was oh i could see it i could see johnny cash always has that thing you know what i mean he can play the he can play the black ace and he can actually like do the bad boy thing but down deep uh, half his songs are fucking bible songs well and he would eventually come back with a few more songs and this would result in his first recordings at Sun. Hey, Porter and Cry, Cry, Cry. And they were released in 1955. And these first two songs were met with reasonable success on the country hit charts. Okay, honestly, that right there is going on my time machine super time travel list. If I ever get to time travel, I want to see what Johnny Cash does between that day and the other day. <laughs> when when Sam Phillips is like, hey, bro, go out and sin, and Johnny Cash comes back with cry, cry, cry. 
And like, Hey Porter. Yeah, and Hey Porter, which is an amazing song. Like, I, I just feel like Cry, Cry, Cry is just way more popular and iconic. And honestly, like, that's so emotional. That song also wouldn't be popular till later in his career anyway with the rediscovery of early Sun stuff. Well, and that that only proves, like, uh, not to try and pull a polarity aspect here, but, like, if it's not super popular with the people in the frontline popularity, it actually could be better because it's just not, like, it takes a while to marinate, you know what I mean? Cry, oh, yeah. Cry, Cry, Cry was a great song when it was recorded, just nobody could quite understand it until years later. And then we get to Roy Orbison. Who would end up recording the song Ooby Dooby? <laughs> Ooby Dooby. Yep. That I, one. I love Roy Orbison. He's a he's a good time sort oh, of. Oh yeah. Well it, he's got a crazy story in and of itself since he's he can see, but he's legally blind. Yeah. He wears those thick glasses and was essentially just a shy guy because of it, got made fun of. Even though he wouldn't become super big on Sun. This song's worth mentioning because it just fucking rocks. He still fits into I would, what I would say is like the iconic soul of rock and yeah. roll for the 50s. Yeah, he would definitely make his bigger songs later, way after Sun Records, but this song did peak at number 59. Ooby doobie, guys. Like, I, I don't even know, like, what else do I have to say? Fucking ooby doobie. Let's get to the dude check out the song after this one, right? So we got Carl Perkins, Blue Suede Shoes. <laughs> Better version than Elvis has come on now. Damn right. Jerry Lee Lewis, whole lot of shaking going on, and Great Balls of Fire. Yeah, we watched a live version, a whole lot of shaking going on, where he's on like some talk or some late night talk show, and it's with his hair flipping around yeah, while he's hair, playing. Hair it's so around. fun, and yeah, he's got a mic stand in the middle of his hands while he's playing piano, and keeps having to shift around it. And if you're a piano player, for nothing more than to see what a badass Jerry Lee Lewis really could be, like go just watch a live uh, that live show. Like it's available on all those. Um, free video sort of areas that you can YouTube. find on the wind interwebs. <laughs> well, and also, it also shows you how to be a showman on the piano. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something like, uh, as a piano player, like, I was able to kind of do, but being a showman on a piano is very hard because you're either facing the wall or you're in the middle of everything with a giant machine in front of you that everybody's staring at you. Like, this. There's well, no other option. Well, and the crazy part is he had the mic facing the audience, so he'd sit half towards the mic, half towards the piano, and he'd be playing the piano, and then he'd go really crazy and just look at the mic and flip yeah. his hair. And yeah, and then there's multiple times where, like, he as his routine, he moves the mic out of the way so he can really do the, the Jerry Lee Lewis smash on the p- piano thing. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, and so, you know, despite his disgusting personal life, it's worth taking a look at just for the musical history of it. And then we get to Johnny Cash. And, of course, these songs are going to be Hey Porter and Cry, Cry, Cry. Cry, Cry, Cry. Because, honestly, these songs are better than his hit songs anyway. Yeah, they are. They are most definitely better than his hit songs. Those two songs are fantastic and will always be iconic. And then we got Roy Orbison, Ooby Dooby. Ooby Dooby. Ooby Dooby. And, actually... I didn't know this before doing the research, but it is a cover song. Really? Yeah. I have no I had no idea who did the original. And so Ooby Doobie was written by a guy named Dick Penner. Yeah. And Dick he, Penner. Yep. And he co wrote it with a guy named Wade Lee Moore. Wade Lee Moore. And Wade Lee Moore would end up recording it with a guy named Rob Barkley. So I 
Yeah. Never heard of those guys. <laughs> Thank you, Roy Orbison, for writing that song. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, it's definitely not your song in quotation marks, but I don't have no any any idea who either of those people are. And Dick Penner, dude, you need a stage name. Or you did. Well, apparently he was just like an English writer and penned a song and was just like, here you go. <laughs> like, he didn't, he wasn't even a musician. He was just, he just wrote the song. Yeah. So he's a Dick Penner. I didn't even put that together. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Fuck that guy. I don't even know him, but actually, we should, instead of fuck that guy, Dick Penner, we should put in the beep, boop, boop machine and just see what happens. Boop, 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 boop. All right. And so in October of 1959, Sun Records would actually end up establishing a subsidiary label called Phillips International. And this is where he would start releasing more of his non-rockabilly music, you know, blues and whatever. Yeah. He basically thought he could make money off of. He would actually have some success with this with releases by Charlie Rich, Carl Mann, Bill Justice. I haven't heard of them, but apparently they had some success back then. Yeah, so but it's at this point where he starts kind of straying from the original manifesto of of Sun Records, sticking with the the rockabilly. Well, I think he was trying to see if he could take music in other avenues besides rockabilly. Yeah, and I mean the whole reason that he did that was because it was on the cutting edge. Like rockabilly was a brand new thing when he said he was recording rockabilly. I would assume that maybe he was head, like trying to hedge his bets and being like, hey, I'm going to pick up these other new like frontline things and see if they pick up too, but he probably was not so successful. Yeah, and this is kind of where we get to like the nondescript years of Sun Records. Like in the mid in the mid 60s, early 60s somewhere around there, he'd end up opening a new studio in Memphis at 639 Madison Avenue to replace the studio at 706 Union. Oh, the the original studio shut down at that point. Yeah, pretty much. You know, yeah, let, upgrade, right? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with switching locations or anything like that. It definitely wasn't a cue for him to start failing. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> in 61, he would open up another studio in Nashville at 17th Street. Both studios at the time were quite popular, and he would make some money off of this. Nothing I could find really notable here. But it was business as usual. Yeah, yeah, business as usual. But the biggest thing with these new studios is in the old studio, apparently they could only record in mono. The new studios, he upgraded so that he actually had stereo machines and could record in stereo. Hell yeah, stereo boys. And he would actually end up using the studio to overdub some of the old stuff he recorded and put them in stereo. Huh, that's that's an interesting process that I can't quite wrap my head around, and it's probably not an appropriate place for us to start discussing it right now, but how you turn a mono recording on, on wax into a stereo recording is an interesting thought. Well, if you got the originals, I imagine it's just some sort of studio magic. Well, yeah, I guess if you have the originals where you have the independent track still isolated, it would be easy. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And... You know, it was also around this time, Sun Records really was like a national label. But with Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins all leaving, like they didn't really have anybody to replace this talent. 
And this is actually really sad because if you start to look at this, it's like Sun Records became a stepping stone for all of these iconic megastars. And, and then they left, got onto mega record labels, and... Just never looked back. Yeah, it, and then Sun was back to a regional recording company. Which, I mean, it, that's kind of always been their thing, so it's obviously like you have to understand like the way that business is and the way that his business model was. That was his style, so you can't blame anyone else for that. But it is very sad to see such, like such heights reached off of his back and like after they take that last step off of him it like it just like he never existed yeah pretty much i mean by 1968 sun was basically dead they issued very few singles and sam phillips would end up you know making a lot of money from you know the artists we previously mentioned and also from investing in other businesses like opening up radio stations and he was actually an early investor in the Memphis-based Holiday Inn chain. <laughs> Holiday Inn? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So maybe without his investment, maybe we wouldn't have cheap, almost <laughs> shitty hotel to sleep in. <laughs> yeah, if it wasn't for his... <laughs> I can't finish I mean, that sentence, I think dude. About, <laughs> think about how many shitty musicians have stayed in the Holiday Inn, though, too. <laughs> so he's so... <laughs> His name continues on. Yeah, the shitty tour where also you have to share a hotel area with hookers and people who will stab you. Hey, they got a vacancy. What is it? Oh, it's a Holiday Inn. Well, we got a place to stay, I guess. Ask him if there's blood on the floor. Can you clean it first before we go in? Just spray it down with some bleach. <laughs> yeah, no, I've never had any terrible experiences with this company. I'm sure it made lots of money, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so because of this decline, on July 1st, 1969, Sam Phillips would end up selling all of Sun Records' properties, label rights, everything, to a man named Shelby S. Singleton Jr., a very successful record producer for Mercury Records. Yeah. And Singleton would actually recognize the value of the catalog, and he would end up re-releasing all of Sun Records into a series of albums on the Sun International label in the United States. Essentially bringing around a second revitalization. It, yeah, exactly. He would also release these records to other companies around the world, you know, making this music more popular around the world, too. And one might argue that Sun Records material is perhaps the most reissued music in the history of the recording business, all because of this guy, really. Yeah, and I mean, all because of this guy and also every rockabilly fanboy slash psychabilly fanboy in the entire world who buys all of these Sun Records, like, regurgitations. Well, and think about all the merch he has probably sold, all the patches oh, yeah. and t-shirts and hats and whatever. Yeah. Oh, my he God. He owned all the rights to it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the way you got to do it. He even mined the Sun archives and would release, like, unissued material he would re-release uh, re stuff in stereo that was never in stereo before yeah especially you know? if you're taking the originals and you're turning it into stereo like that's a viable reason to re-release something you know yeah and he essentially went well i have this job that's been profitable but i see some more money out of this so give it to me that always kind of seems like we talk a lot about like em emotional musicians who put their heart and soul into something this sam phillips seems like a goddamn good businessman 
He may have uh, lost out on a little bit of a $40,000 sale of Elvis, but other than that, like, he seems to be pretty on top of it. Yeah, well, he does have his critics, though. He was often claimed to have put his business ahead of ethics, and once these white musicians started getting mega hits, you know, kind of ignored African Americans so he could make way more profit off these white artists. And actually, like, I guess there was a few artists, I don't have any names, but I guess there was a few artists who would occasionally question and challenge his royalty payments to them. Uh, so there, there was, like, I could assume with any time you have sort of royalty payments and business orientation, somebody's going to question something. Yeah, some somebody's going to feel like they got burned. Yeah, I, and I mean, that's not to... That is not to defend anybody who's lost on royalty payments because royalty payments is one of the reasons or one of the things that people get fucked on a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he did have his defenders. Some people say he helped improve race relations and advance the cause of racial equality. I don't really know. I mean, I don't think. Okay. I'm not going to attribute one way or the other. It kind of seems like race really wasn't involved in his thought process. It seems like, it seems like business was, and I'm going to call this back to where he said, if it give me a, uh, give me a white guy with the soul of a black man, I'll make a million dollars. Like, uh, that, that sort of mentality shows that he has a lot of respect for the musicianship of like the black community, but it also he, shows that he knows. Yeah, he knows where the money's coming from. Yeah, he knows the situation in the business world at the time, which is unfortunate. And don't get me wrong, I'm not fucking supporting it in any sort of way. If you think I'm supporting that, you should listen to any other episode we've ever talked about this shit. But I mean, one cool thing he did do, though, was he was also like one of the first radio station owners to employ women DJs in the 50s. Fuck yeah, dude. That's so, awesome. So, I mean, you know. He's got some bad, got some good, but I think at the end of the day, he was just like, you know, I'm doing this to make money. Yeah, and I mean, let's let's doesn't be real matter about the co- it. the color or gender. If you can make me money, let's do it. Yeah, and female DJs would be a great idea in the '50s. Don't get me wrong; like, there's you know, we uh, we were talking uh, a few weeks ago about Wolfman Jack and all those like big uh, '70s DJs and the the big iconic. Like, well, we were personally. Yeah, no, no, we as oh yeah, sorry, me and Ian were having a, a private conversation about this, and uh, like having like female DJs, especially in the '50s, is such a huge boon to where. I don't even think that's that's not a, a that's not a gender superiority thing or anything. That's just smart business. Well, and we're kind of getting to a close of the whole Sun Record stuff, but let's uh, talk about Phillips a little bit more. Oh, dude, he doesn't get an unmarked grave, does he? No, he doesn't. He did die of respiratory failure on August first in two thousand three. He was buried at Memorial Park in Memphis, but it just. It seems weird because we're covering the record label. It just. We still have to talk. The man created the record label. We can give him a little moment before. What what day did he, or what's the year here where he passed? 2003. 2003. What? Really? Yeah. Holy shit, dude. That is actually very, very recent. I mean, he's probably got all that awesome money from the Holiday Inn investment. (laughs) Yeah, he probably, he felt comfortable into the end of his life at least. But he would also end up being inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, the Alabama Music Hall of Fame in 1987, the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2001, and the Rockabilly Hall of Fame. Don't get a year on that. There's a Rockabilly Hall of Fame? Apparently. Wow. I've never, we haven't even brought this up at any point, so there must not be a lot of like, 
I guess we don't cover like core rockabilly people yet. Yeah. And he's actually the only person to be inducted into all of these Hall of Fames, too. Oh, uh, yeah, as, as the whole collection. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think he kind of is similar in that way to, like, a Lomax figure where he kind of transcends genres and stuff because it's not it's not him personally creating music. Yeah. It's him recording great musicians. Yeah, and, you know, really, if you think about it, I think we're getting to final thoughts here, but if you think about it, he really did discover Elvis when nobody else was even looking for an Elvis. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's you keep saying final thoughts, so let's just go ahead and do that. Bah, 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 final thoughts. <laughs> All right, Ian, would you bring us your final thoughts? I will. Honestly, I just want to say thank you, Sam Phillips, for bringing us Holiday Inn. Without you, we wouldn't have a safe place to stay when we're on the road. We're kind of safe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else did you... Oh, right, the music part. <laughs> Thanks for Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, really, really what I want to say is, honestly, without Sam Phillips, I think music would have taken a way different turn than it did. You know, maybe we'd all be playing blues you know yeah maybe maybe rock and roll is a whole different thing it's blues and roll now blues and roll he literally discovered elvis just walking into a studio and realized what could possibly be done from that and literally changed music because of it maybe he didn't get to be there for all of elvis's career and really see his mega hits but without his little light bulb in the head when he sees him sing elvis might not even be a thing we bitch about him, but honestly, without Elvis, rock and roll wouldn't be where it's at. No, for sure. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, we can talk as much shit about our Elvis personally as we want, but the fact that every person in the whole world is going to know who Elvis is when I say Elvis is also in a testament. You know what I mean? And, I mean, even though he had several asshole spotlight artists in his studios, including Pat Hare. Remember, we did an el- uh, episode on Pat Hare. Yeah, yeah good old Pat <laughs> Hare. You let me celebrate the whole episode because we have the same <laughs> name. <laughs> hey, you were excited at the beginning. Yeah, you, you sure ended that quickly, Ian. <laughs> Is it my turn for last thoughts, or am I still roasting you? Uh, you can go for last thoughts. <laughs> All right, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get too deep and emotional. I'm gonna I'm gonna we're gonna talk about a little uh, logistical thing here. I want to talk about the fact that you know, good, bad, or ugly, black or white, color of skin or type of music genre. This teaches us a very important lesson about what music is in our modern culture. Sun Records is proof that it does not require major backing or some sort of okay from some massive producer for you to be a validized or a validated musician. No, and you even got more proof nowadays with all the available recording equipment in general. I mean, and ways to share your music. Just look at all the uh, SoundCloud rappers. Yeah, exactly. So I and I mean, we shout out to Mad Shroom, the man who brought me the the cloud rapper uh, information in the in the origin. Uh, but in the reality is like music itself is always growing and always changing and nobody's going to know whether a genre is going to be popular or not until it gets its proper due so if you and 15 other people all play the same type of music and nobody listens 
that can still be a revolution if you just get it to the right people. You don't necessarily have to be Sam Phillips. You don't have to make everything about business. You don't have to wait till Elvis walks in one day and makes you a bajillion dollar. Oh wait, no, excuse me, twenty five thousand dollars. No, 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 no. We ended at forty. Oh, forty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> until Elvis saunters into your area and makes you forty thousand dollars, but either way. You don't have to wait for those events. You can get out there with your own genre of music and do whatever you want. And just as a group of people, bring multiple artists of the same new genre together at the same time in the right way. You never know what's going to catch on. But really what, what catches on more than anything else is supportive musicians. So if you have a musician friend who plays a style of music or a million bands that kind of all play one weird, obscure music that nobody pays attention to, do your best to support them. Yeah, go to their shows, buy their merch, and share it with your friends. Yeah, encourage them to play together in places where new people can listen. Like, things like that is is really important, and our musical culture today is extremely lacking in it. And I know we're in a, we're in a little bit of lockdown culture right now, and that's what it is right now but that's just more time for you to stay in your goddamn room and record me the yeah, greatest create, goddamn create create yeah record the greatest song in the whole fucking world for us you know what i mean the the new blue suede shoes or or you know ain't nothing but a bear claws still out there to be written <laughs> and all you really got cat oh yeah bear cat yeah sorry the bear claws a donut isn't it <laughs> yeah ain't nothing making but a, me hungry now yeah ain't nothing but a bear claw uh-huh Eating you all the time, <laughs> yeah, getting all donuty, but I'm, uh, but I'm trying to be, uh, uh, I'm trying to just encourage people, no matter your music style, no matter what it is, fucking experiment, get out there, have fun, do new weird things, and share that weird stuff with people. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. But guess what? Someone somewhere is gonna find the new Elvis, and that's just the way the world works. And also, if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Yeah, and uh, give us all types of stars in all types of different places and find us in social media locations and just know that we really love you for listening. Thank you. Have a good night. And hi to Europe, because apparently you guys are listening to us now, too. Hi, Europe. Hey.